The Czech Republic, a small land smack dab in the center of Europe. It has a long and fascinating history and more castles and chateaus per square kilometer than any other country in Europe. But when you think Czech Republic, you most certainly think about beer. Beer is a fundamental part of life here. People talk about beer, think about beer, drink a lot of beer, more than anyone else in the world by far. So it might be helpful to have a basic knowledge of beer for people either visiting here or living here. What follows is stuff that every Czech already knows and will help you interact with the culture in a meaningful and pleasant way. Bottoms up! A city is much more than just a collection of buildings. It's a location, it's a history, it's a culture, it's ideas and ideals, and a city is also, most importantly, the people in it. This is Prague Times, the podcast that takes a look at the city of Prague in the Czech Republic. With more than a thousand years of history, there's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the past of Prague, but we'll also talk about the city as it is today, future plans for the city, and much more. It's Prague then, Prague now, and Prague later. And this is Prague Times. Beer has been around for literally thousands of years. A semi-nomadic people known as the Natufians have been using fermentation for ritual foodstuffs in the Levant, in modern-day Israel, mainly centered around caves near Haifa 13,000 years ago. There's evidence that 9,000 years ago, so about 7,000 BCE, the Chinese were making a beer-like drink out of rice, honey, grapes, and hawthorn, which is a tiny little red berry, sometimes also called a thorn apple. In the 5th millennium BCE, a cereal or grain-based beer was being made in Iran, and then this spread all through Mesopotamia and got as far as Egypt. In Europe, something like beer has been made for the last 5,000 years. The first mention of using hops as a flavoring agent and a preservative comes from 822 CE in writings by Charlemagne's cousin, Adelaide of Corby. German towns started using hops all the time, but it was here in Bohemia that hopped beer really reached technical perfection in the 13th century. The Bohemian technique spread back into Germany and then Holland, Flanders, and even to England in the 15th century, which sparked off a long-standing debate in England as to whether or not hops should be allowed in their ales. Now, these beers were all thick, heavy drinks. They were all top-fermented ales. That's why so many cultures refer to it as liquid bread. Beer was a safe way to get necessary fluids. After all, water might not be that safe to drink, but because beer is fermented, it is safe to drink, and it has nutritional value and vitamins. And so it went through the centuries. From the 16th century, the most popular beers in Bohemia were wheat beers, sometimes called white beers, and red beers, which are also called barley beers. Reportedly, Czechs drink 188 liters of beer per person per year, which works out to 15.6 per month or a tad over two pints a day. Now that's if you include everyone, babies, pensioners, etc. Austria comes in second with a paltry 108 liters per person per year, Germany around 100 liters per year, and the UK's down around 70. So yeah, we love our beer here. It's dear. 
and the Czechs are quite serious about their beer. Beer was so tied to Czech identity and even to the economy that in the late 13th century, King Václav II decreed that the punishment for stealing the famous Saz hops grown in central Bohemia would be death. In 1516, Bavaria passed the Reinheitsgebot, or Purity Order. This specified that beer can only be made from water, barley, hops, and some malt. Yeast isn't even mentioned, though it is understood that you need yeast to ferment things. Back then, yeast was not very well understood. In the olden days in England, they used to leave wet grain out in the open, and a theorized invisible substance might or might not land on it and start fermentation. The English called this invisible substance, God is good. It is now known that this is yeast, and yeast floats around in the air all over the place all the time. The Bavarian Purity Order also specified various business practices, which the Czechs would also adopt, something called the Mile Law or Mile Rule. Essentially, you couldn't sell a beer further than a mile, approximately, from where it was made. And this is back before motorized transportation and beer traveling on bumpy roads and a horse-drawn cart is going to get bounced around a lot and lose a lot of carbonation. So, as a result of this, lots of small breweries popped up to serve their small little local populations. Then in the 20th century, when the communists came along and after the war, Czech beer history diverged significantly from Germany, where the purity order was still in effect in an altered form until late 2015. When the communists took power in 1948, there were about a thousand breweries in the country, but this number plummeted under their mismanagement and standardization. Plus, secret police spied on people in pubs, and so very often people would be circumspect unless they knew the usual clientele and the owners. The Velvet Revolution didn't help things at first, and even more places closed as we shifted to a capitalist economy. At the start of the 21st century, there were only about 60 breweries left in the whole country. But thanks to entrepreneurship and a fairly decent standard of living, we've now seen an increase in small beer producers in the past 20 years. And today, we have about 400 breweries in the Czech Republic, and 30 of them are here in Prague. Unlike, say, in the United States, most pubs here sell beer from a single brewery and sometimes only one variety or brand from that brewery. In fact, part of getting your beer on in Prague is walking the streets looking for signs that advertise your favorite brands. Oh, that's a Pilsner place. Oh, that's a Stauderpromen place. Oh, that's a Radagast place. This is quite different from in the United States, for example, where beer pubs very often have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different kinds of beers on tap. The world record is the Raleigh Beer Garden in Raleigh, North Carolina, which currently boasts 397 different beer brands on tap. Czech beer is a matter of degrees. 10 degree or desitka, 11 degree or jedenatska, and 12 degree or dvanatska are the most common. Now, some places, for some reason, they can't figure out how to get the degree sign, that little circle, to print for their menus, so they substitute a percent sign instead. But this is not accurate. A 10-degree beer is not 10% alcohol. Instead, a 10-degree beer means that it rates 10 degrees on the Plato scale, also sometimes called the balling scale. Insert joke of your choice here. This scale measures the weight percentage of sucrose or extracted sugars in a mixture. A desitka, or 10 degree, is made from wort that's 10% or so extracted sugars. 
Okay, so here's basically how you make beer. Step one, take some starch, usually barley mixed with grist, and the grist is usually crushed malt of some kind, and then mix that together with hot water in a big container called a mash tun. This process is known as mashing. It takes an hour or two. The starches get converted into sugars, and the mix of sugar-rich liquid and material from the grain is called wort. If the extracted sugars in this wort make up about 10% of the total volume, then you're going to get a 10 degree beer. If it's 12%, you're going to get a 12 degree beer, and so on. Step two, drain off the wort. You can get more of the liquid off the moist grains by washing them in a process known as sparging. You then filter the excess liquid and then add it back into the wort, and now you have a whole bunch of fermentable liquid. Three, Put the liquid into a container called a kettle or a copper, so-called because they were often made of mm, copper. Add hops, a bitter plant distantly related to cannabis, and boil. The longer you boil it, the more bitterness from the hops gets into the final product, but less hops flavor and aroma. So if you want a hoppier beer, boil it for less time. The boiling also kills off any lingering enzymes that you don't want and it makes the water evaporate. So what you're left with is a moist mash that's barley starch, extracted sugars, malt, and hops. This mixture is called hopped wort. Four. In modern beers, the hopped wort now has to be dried. Some people don't dry it and that's known as wet hop beer. Also sometimes, brewers will put the hopped wort into a container called a hop back and then toss in more hops to add more flavor and aroma. These hops also serve as another filter to help clear all the little particulates and bits that are still suspended or floating in the mixture. But most times, the hopped wort is simply put straight into a fermentation tank to cool, though it may pass through a heat exchanger to speed the cooling process. Step five, add yeast. Yeast is a crazy little critter, a single-celled microorganism belonging to the fungus kingdom. Over 15,000 different types of yeast have been categorized, so choosing the right one is part of the art of beer brewing. Yeasts basically eat carbohydrates and sugars and then poop out alcohol and carbon dioxide. The polite way to say that is to say that they convert carbohydrates and sugars into alcohol and carbon dioxide, but really, when you get down to it, alcohol is yeast poop. This feast for the yeasts is called fermentation. While the little guys are chowing down, they also generate a bit of heat, which causes them to split which is how they make babies. So fermentation is really a wild bacchanalian party for yeast, eating and pooping and farting and making babies and just having a grand old time. Step six, most of the fine particulates will settle to the bottom of the fermentation vat, clearing the beer. Once the yeast party is over, meaning there's nothing left for them to eat, the yeast also settles, clearing the beer even more. And step seven, much of the yeast farts is the CO2, the carbon dioxide. A lot of that's allowed to escape using a vent, though some of it is kept behind, which is what makes the beer bubbly. If you want more carbonation, you can put the fermenting liquid into a pressure vessel, like a keg. You can also just add in more CO2, injecting it into the fluid. Most of the starchy carbohydrates have been converted into alcohol in the first or primary stage of fermentation. If you want, you can stick the beer into a cask or a keg for a slower second fermentation process, or just put it straight into cans and bottles where another type of secondary fermentation process takes place. And that's beer. It's four things, water, malt, hops, barley, or some other starch. You can use corn or wheat or even rice. I mean, that's basically what sake is. 
So again, a Desitka beer has 10% of the matter from step one as dissolvable extracted sugars. When the whole process is finished, a Desitka is going to be around 35 to 4% alcohol. A 12 degree is usually around 5% alcohol. And Pernstein Brewery's 19 degree porter, made in Pedrobitza, is a whopping 8% alcohol. And that stuff slaps you around, as my wife and I can both attest. The other thing to keep in mind is that there are two styles of fermenting beer, top fermentation and bottom fermentation. Typical top fermented varieties include ales. This includes IPAs and APAs and all other pale ales. Alt beers, that's a German word for old, meaning old style. Wheat beers, white beers, which is a German and Belgian style that uses wheat malt. Porter, a dark beer made from wort that has 18% extracted sugars. Stout, a very, very dark beer. And Russian Imperial Stout is usually around 9% alcohol, so that's not kidding around. And barley wine. Barley wine is the strongest and is usually around 10% alcohol. Your bottom fermented types include lagers. This is what most of us think of when we think of beer. So basically, you're going to be drinking either an ale, which is top fermented, or a lager, which is bottom fermented. There's also something called yeast beer, in which fresh yeast and or fermenting wort is tossed into the beer at the end of the process. Session beers, also sometimes called taproom beers, which are often not as strong, made from 7 to 10% extracted sugars, so they have less alcohol. They're designed to sort of sit and drink all day. Beer that's been flavored, like the Belgians often do, with their lambics, their fruit-flavored beers, and their witbier, which is flavored with orange peel and coriander. Smoked beer, where you smoke the malt first. Often in Germany, they use beechwood. And unfiltered beer, and so on. So there are lots of different varieties. But essentially, you're dealing with an ale or a lager. Dark beers are made either by toasting or browning the wort or by caramelizing the grain at the start of the whole beer making process. Now here in the Czech Republic, only about 4% of the market are drinkers of dark or semi-dark beers. These are called polotmave or half-dark. For most Czechs, it's all about svietle pivo, light beer. Now that doesn't mean light beer in the American sense. In the U.S., many major brands have some kind of lower-calorie version that they call light, which are essentially very similar to European session beers. For Czechs, it's really just about the color of the beverage. Light-colored beers usually have a little bit more alcohol, maybe a little bit less barley than dark ones. Light beer is called Svietli, and dark beer is called Tamave. The standard drink for Czechs is a Svietli Dvanostka, or a light-colored 12-degree beer. Hops first started getting cultivated in Bohemia around 859 CE and started being exported as early as 903. Even then, they were considered to be of the highest quality. The first king of Bohemia, Vladislav II, granted a hop-growing charter to the church at Vyshehrad in 1088, and so hops were even grown in what's now the city of Prague. The most famous hops are the Saaz hops, that's S-A-A-Z. Saaz is the German name for the town of Jatetz, near where these are cultivated in central Bohemia. They're quite distinctive and considered one of the four noble hops. However, there are many, 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 many hop varieties out there in the world being used to make beers. Saaz hops are low in acid and impart an earthy, herbal, slightly spicy flavor that's not too bitter. 
The first public brewery in these lands is generally considered to have started in a manor house in Cerhenica, a market town just a little bit northwest of Kolin and Kutnohora, which is east of Prague, about 60 kilometers. This was in the year 1118 CE. Before that, brewing in Europe was exclusively the domain of monasteries. Monks had to fast from time to time, but beer was considered not breaking the fast. <laughs> so they made a lot and they drank a lot. In fact, brewing was limited by royal decree to only monasteries imposed by Duke Boleslav III around the year 1000. And this restriction, which would only have a few exceptions, would remain in place for 250 years. Then in 1250, King Wenceslas I lifted the restriction on brewing rights, and breweries started cropping up all over the place. Burger or city breweries started showing up in royal towns in the 13th century, and by the time of the Thirty Years' War in the 17th century, there were more than 3,000 breweries in Bohemia and Moravia. Now, with the invention of bottom-fermented lagers and the Pilsen method in 1842, breweries retooled to make this new kind of beer, and then mass industrialization allowed the beer industry to scale. The number of breweries had dropped over the ensuing centuries, but they started to go on the rise again, and by 1870, there were 870 breweries making Pilsen-style lagers in just Bohemia alone. Wheat beers, which had been all the rage for ages before Josef Grohl's newfangled work in Pilsen, all but disappeared from the region and this new style of beer became the beer to drink. Then World War I, then the First Republic, then World War II, then the Communists. The Communist government nationalized everything and kind of put the brakes on innovation. They only allowed two types of beer to be produced, light lager and dark lager. However, many brewers secretly kept the old ways alive, producing very small batches to keep in practice and to supply for their friends and family, hoping that someday either the communists would change their minds or maybe they would just go away. After the Velvet Revolution in 1989, Czech breweries struggled to adapt to the new normal and many of them went under. Many small breweries got bought up by larger ones, which in turn often got sold off to large international concerns. The Pilsensky Prazdroy Group is still top dog, with decent international sales, which make up about a third of their profits, all told, as well as 40% of the whole domestic market. They own Pilsner Urquell, the first modern lager, as well as the 10-degree Gambrinus, Velkopopovitsky Kozel, and the Moravian brand Radegast, those last two acquired in 1999. That same year, the Pilsner Group got bought by South African breweries, which in turn got bought by the American company Miller and became SAB Miller, who then moved their headquarters to just outside of London. SAB Miller got bought by Anheuser-Busch, which then itself was bought by Belgian mega company Enbev in 2008 and is currently the largest brewing company in the world with more than 650 beer brands. In December that year, after just a few months of ownership, Imbev sold Pilsner and its other SAB Miller holdings to the Japanese beer company Asahi, a deal that finalized in March 2017. So today, Pilsner, that most Czech of all Czech beers, is owned by the Japanese, as are all the other brands that Pilsner oversees. Based right here in Prague, in Smichov, in Prague 5, the second largest beer producer in the country is Staropramen. With 15.5% of the domestic market, it's still way behind Pilsner's 40%. The name Staropramen means old spring or old source, and the water the brewery used came from an ancient underground spring of superior quality. But then the Soviets came in in the late 70s and early 80s to build the metro system and damaged this spring, and so Staropramen had to switch where they got their water from. They decided to use the Voltava River. 
which was rather famously nasty. As you can imagine, quality dropped significantly, becoming something of a joke in the Czech lands. Then in 1992, hot on the heels of the Velvet Revolution, they joined with the Branik and Mestian breweries to help form the Prague Breweries Group. This group was bought in 1996 by British beer maker Bass, who, among other things, owns the Holiday Inn hotel chain. In 2000, Bass sold Staropramen and the rest of the group to a company called Interbrew, which merged with Ambev to become InBev, who then bought Anheuser-Busch. So the Belgians, once again, took over a Czech beer, in this case, Staropramen. Now, InBev had to fix the water quality issue since Staropramen was pretty nasty. So they ended up creating a triple filtration system that they later patented and now use in many breweries all over the world. So now this was maybe the purest water being used for beer anywhere, but the local reputation for the low quality still lingered, and that's probably part of the reason why their market share is so low. In 2009, Anheuser-Busch InBev sold many of their Central European holdings to an investment group based in Luxembourg that grew out of the American giant Citicorp called CVC Capital Partners. CVC gathered all these beer companies together under the brand name Starbev, and then they sold Starbev to Molson Coors in 2012. Molson Coors is an American-Canadian concern that came from a merger of two different beer companies in 2005. Molson Coors now owns Staropromben, as well as other beer properties in the region. The Czech brands Starobrno, Krušovice, Zlatopramen, and Pšesniak are all owned today by the Dutch giant Heineken, which is the third largest brewing company in the world. And the last of the big dogs, of course, is Budvar. Technically, this is called Budjavitsky Budvar, and it is the second most exported Czech beer after Pilsner. It is not the same thing as the beer that made Anheuser-Busch's fortune, Budweiser, or Bud, as it is sometimes known. And the two brands have been involved in a protracted legal battle for many years now. The royal city of Czeska Budjavice has been making beer since the 13th century. The German name for this city is Budweiss, and much like how Pilsen gave its name to Pilsner beer, so all beers made in this style are known as Pilsners, the name Budweiser sort of just got attached to this particular type of beer. It sort of became generically synonymous with high-quality lager-style beer, in much the same way that Kleenex is often used in conversation to mean any facial tissue regardless of who actually manufactures it. In the 19th century, the Czech brewery switched, as so many others did, to making lager-style beers that had been pioneered in Pilsen by Josef Grohl. For more on that story, you can listen to our oldest pub in Prague episode. Now, in St. Louis, Missouri, in the U.S., in 1852, a German-American saloon owner named Schneider started a brewery, but fell on hard times and had to sell it. The buyers were a German-born soap maker named Ebhardt Anhäuser and a local pharmacist. They changed the name from Bavarian Brewery, which was the original name, to E. Anhäuser and Company. The pharmacist ended up selling his share to Adolphus Busch, a German immigrant who was married to Anhäuser's daughter, Lily, and then the company Anhäuser-Busch was off and running. They were the first brewery anywhere in the world to use pasteurization to preserve the beer's shelf life, as well as refrigerated train cars for transportation. 
1872, the Bohemian Budweiser Budvar Brewery, as it was known in its weird amalgamation of Czech, German, and English, started exporting their beer to the United States. In 1875, German-speaking residents of Czeska Budivica, who ran the city brewery, which was called the Budweiser Beer Burgerbrau, started exporting a beer that they called Budweiser to the U.S. The next year, 1876, Anheuser-Busch, this American company run by two German immigrants, did two notable things. It introduced bottled beer extensively, and they started making a beer that was an intentional attempt to recreate the famous Czech Budvar or Budweiss beer, and they called this beer Budweiser. So now we have three of them on the market. Needless to say, the Czechs were not happy with this. They filed a lawsuit in 1895 saying they'd been making beer longer than the United States had ever been a country. Bush countered by saying he was making the beer using his own processes, which had been pioneered by Schneider. And while yes, the intent had been to make something similar to Czech Budvar, it was actually a whole different thing altogether. Also, by the way, Bush had trademarked the name with the proper authorities in the United States. Legal challenges went on until 1939, when the Czech company finally gave permission to Anheuser-Busch to use the name for all territories in the Western Hemisphere north of Panama, while the Czechs could have all of Europe. But then the war came, and then the communists came, the Budweiser Beer Burgerbrau closed down, and like everything else here, the communists nationalized the Budvar Brewery. Well, was a state-run communist brewery going to challenge American giant Anheuser-Busch in court? Ha ha ha! I think not! Ha ha ha! And so things continued throughout the Cold War, with people forgetting that Budvar had been a Czech beer in the first place. Then the Velvet Revolution happened in 1989, and Budweiser Bia Burgerbrau was restituted to descendants of the previous owners. Then it was bought by a Czech beer company named Samson, while the Budvar brewery was still state-operated. And Anheuser-Busch began a massive international push and, of course, naturally came into conflict with the Czech Budvar people who were also trying to expand into the international scene. Negotiations were entered into at the end of 1989 with the aim of dividing the globe up into separate territories for the two companies. But then in 1994, when it finally looked like it had all been hammered out and everything was ready, the Czechs stubbornly refused to sign. So the next year, in 1995, Anheuser-Busch registered the name Budweiser with the European Commission. Budvar objected, more legal battles ensued, some of them trademark dispute cases, others purely procedural issues. In 2004, the European Commission gave the Czechs protected geographical indication rights to use the name Budjevitsky Pivo and Česko Budjevitsky Pivo in all of their branding. Anheuser-Busch argued that, yeah, well, yes, they're allowed to use the Czech terms, but there's nothing in there about using Budweiser, which is a German word. More legal battles ensued. In 2007, an agreement was finally reached that the Czech Budvar beer could be sold on the U.S. market and would be distributed and marketed by Anheuser-Busch, but under the name Czechvar in the United States, Canada, and Brazil. Anheuser-Busch then lost a case trying to get the term Budweiser recognized as their own trademark throughout the entire EU. They appealed, but then lost that appeal in 2009. More cases hit the courts with different outcomes. The Czechs could use both Budvar and Budweiser in Germany. Anheuser-Busch, who by now had merged with InBev, got to use it in 23 European countries, including the UK. In countries where they were not allowed to use Budweiser, they went on a marketing push to change the name of the beer to just Bud. 
That's where all that comes from, is from this lawsuit. Czech Bouvard would end up winning 88 of 124 separate cases in 2010 and 2011, allowing them rights to use the name in 68 countries and preventing InBev from using it at all in any form in those 68 countries. For example, in Germany. In Germany, the Czechs can say use Budweiser and Budvar, but Anheuser-Busch's beer they call Anheuser-Busch B. In Italy, the Czechs won, forcing InBev to call their beer Bud there. But in Portugal, InBev won, so the Czechs cannot use the name Budweiser there. In 2013, the UK Supreme Court, probably tired of all of these cases, ruled that both companies could use any name they wanted when selling their products in the UK. And so on and on it goes, country by country. One assumes until every territory on earth where humans live has to have a court ruling on who gets to call their beer Budweiser in that place. Legal wrangling aside, the communists really hurt the beer industry here in the Czech lands. However, as the 20th century shifted into the 21st, the Czech entrepreneurship sparked something of a renaissance in small experimental breweries. By 2007, there were more than 100 breweries in the country, with many different kinds of beers being produced and offered, very much inspired by the craft beer movement going on in the U.S. and the U.K. In the past 14 years, that number of breweries making a go of it has quadrupled to around 400. However, the pandemic has been quite rough on small businesses of all types, and so we shall see what happens once max vaccinations have occurred and things open up again. But it seems like the age of the small brewery is back in Bohemia. Pilsner Urquell Brewery actually sends inspectors around to different pubs that carry their beers and they hand out awards for the best job. When you see a bunch of these awards on the wall of a pub, you know you're in good hands. Proper tapsters at famous high-end or branded pubs are even sent to Pilsner for a five-day course on how to pour the perfect pint. One of the beer innovations used here is the side pour tap, which means the tap handle turns sideways instead of straight up and down. This is perfect for a lager since it guarantees control over the foam and enhances the spicy flavor notes in the saws hops. Now, British people and many Americans are used to the beer being filled right up to the lip of the glass with no head. To do anything else is to shortchange the customer in these cultures, but not here. Here, we need that head. The proper way to pour a glass of beer here in the Czech Republic is, first off, use a clean glass. Dirty glasses have oils and tiny bits of matter from the previous beer, and so a clean glass is essential. You put the glass right up to the tap nozzle and tip it at a 45-degree angle so it flows smoothly down the side of the glass with no splashing. When the beer gets to the lip, stop a moment, straighten the glass, and drop it down a little, and then finish pouring from a bit of a height right into the center of the glass. This will create the head. After the head clears a bit, it should end up being about an inch to an inch and a half high, about two and a half to four centimeters. And the liquid beer should be right up to the 0.5 liter line on the glass. If it isn't, feel free to send it back. Tell them that they gave you a kratki, or short beer. Any place worth their salt will acknowledge the mistake and top you up. If they don't, it might be time to take your business elsewhere. Now you want that head because it sort of caps the beer and keeps the carbonation in. The foam is made from carbon dioxide bubbles, those little yeast farts, that also have tiny amounts of liquid beer inside of them. And the longer you can get that head to stay in the glass, the better. 
don't just suck off all the head at the top of it in one gulp. You'll know you got a perfect pour when you get thin lines of foam around the inside of the glass going down as you drink the beer, a line for each time you took a sip. The pour I just described is known as the Nadvakrat, or two times, because there are the two phases to the pour, the 45 degree filling it up with liquid, and then the rest of it to create the head. And that's the usual way here in the Czech Republic. Many Pilsner pubs will also serve what's known as a Hladinka pour, which means smooth. It's half liquid beer and half foam. The result is a more balanced flavor. The trick is to finish the beer before all the foam is gone. As I said, the foam bubbles also have beer inside of them, and when they pop, that liquid gets added to the beer. So the whole thing actually ends up to be a proper 0.5 pint, even though it started off being half foam. So calm down, British people. Many beer connoisseurs think that the Hladinka pour is the perfect balance of sweet and bitter. You can also get what's called a schneet or a cut pour. This is something a lot of tapsters will do at the start of their shift to kind of make sure that all the equipment's working correctly. It's two parts beer, three parts foam, and one part empty space in the glass. Once the foam settles, it amounts to a 0.3 beer. A 0.3 is usually available everywhere, even in the Nadvakrat style, and it's called a small beer or a molly pivo, something people will use when they don't want to glug down a whole bunch, or they don't have a lot of time, or they don't want to drink too much beer, or on a hot day, a friend of mine actually only gets molly pivos because that way it stays cold longer. A schnitt or cut pour is less filling than a full beer, but it's more refreshing than just getting a molly nadvakrat. This is considered to be good with really heavy food or on a really hot day. And finally, there's the mliko or milk pour. The tapster opens the tap up just a little bit and fills the entire glass with beer foam. Now, this used to be a sort of a final, final poured out as a gift after a patron had paid their bill. And sometimes it was a signal that the tapster had started or ended their shift. In the late days of the Habsburg Empire and all the way into the First Republic, it was also thought of as a, a way for women to enjoy a beer since it was a little bit sweeter. And the Saz hops aromas are much more pronounced. It was even sometimes used after a meal as a dessert beer. The malt flavors also tend to come out more in a Maliko. And once the foam clears, again, it amounts to a 0.3. Czechs are really the only Slavs who have a beer-drinking pub culture. I mean, all cultures like alcohol, but many Slavic cultures use alcohol to get drunk very quickly because they mainly drink spirits. And then you just kind of maintain that buzz as long as possible. The Czechs are more like the Bavarians. Having beer is a way to hang out with friends and relax, talk about the issues of the day, enjoy each other's company, and so on. And getting drunk is, for the most part, a byproduct of this process. With so much time spent in pubs, it should come as no surprise that there are some particularities to the whole Czech pub experience. First off, men who order anything weaker than a 12 degree will get a little bit of a side glance from the servers. Likewise with dark beer, likewise with a molly or small beer. Here, men drink 0.5 liter 12 degree beers, damn it. 
Having said that, here in Prague, it probably won't be that much of a deal unless the place is super old school. You must keep in mind that Czech ideas of service come out of the Austrian model, not the American one. In the United States, the customer is always right. Here, the waiter and the people who work there are always right. They're the ones who deal with this stuff day in and day out, after all, and sometimes they even went to school to learn how to be a good waiter. So when you go into a Czech pub or a restaurant or even a shop, you have to keep in mind that you in they house. They will serve you when they can, and they might even refuse to give you what you want if you ask for something that they feel is weird or incorrect. Seriously, they really might. They are not there to be your friend. They are there to serve the things that their establishment has on offer in what they think of as the correct way. If you want things done differently, then you should go someplace else. They are the experts, not you. When ordering a beer, many places will put a small rectangle of paper on the table, which is the bill or uchet, and then they'll just make lines on it, one for each beer ordered. They don't write the word beer, which is pivo in Czech, and then ticks. They just have the ticks, and everybody knows that those lines mean beers. Gotta watch those ticks in some places, though. Unscrupulous service will sometimes try and sneak extra ticks under your bill after you've had a few and maybe aren't paying so much attention. This practice partly comes from the old days when servers actually had to buy the kegs of beer themselves, and so then the beers they sold reimbursed them for the money that they laid out and also ended up basically paying most of their salary. This was seen as a way by the businesses to prevent servers from drinking too much beer while on duty. If they had to pay for it up front, then they'd serve it and sell it instead of drinking it. It's very rare to find a pub that doesn't have branded beer mats or coasters, as they say in the United States, and they will expect you to use them. After all, what are you trying to do? Ruin their nice table? Unless you're drinking alone, it is expected that you will say cheers when everyone gets their first beer. You say nazdravi, which means to your health, and then a bit of a ritual ensues. You say nazdravi, and then you cheers with one person. You look that person in the eyes, touch your beer glass to their beer glass, and then go on to the next person, and the next person, and the next person, and the next person. If you do not look each person directly in the eyes, check say it is seven years bad sex. At a table with a bunch of people, do not cross arms while cheersing either. That is also seven years bad sex. In Moravia, it's not uncommon to see people kind of take the glass and tap the bottom of the glass on the tabletop, but in Prague, this is considered to be a no-go. It shows you for being not of the capital. And also, it's racist. It actually comes from an old Austrian custom. You looked around when you first got your beers and then hit the bottom of the glass on the table as a signal to your fellow drinkers that you didn't spot any Jews nearby. Seriously. So, maybe don't do that. Also, you cannot take a sip of your beer until everybody has done the Nazdravi ritual. Additionally, do not touch beer glasses to non-beer glasses. You can raise your glass and gesture towards a cup of coffee or a cola or a glass of wine, but they should not touch. Only beer glasses should touch other beer glasses. And if they don't touch, that's also a problem. Do not spill your beer at any time, especially during the cheers phase. There's nothing about sex here. It just makes you look like a rube. Okay, so that's all done. Finally, you can drink. 
Most Czech men take a big drink on the first sip of the first beer. Just be careful you don't suck all the foam off it or reduce all the beer quality. So down like one-fifth to one-quarter of the first pint in one go and then proceed as you care to. People whose first drink is just a little sip, well, they're sissies. In a really traditional pub, the server will bring you a new beer just as you're finishing the old one. And this will continue forever. Even though sometimes it's hard to get the server's attention, in most places they are monitoring you and noticing when your beer gets to a certain level. If you want to stop a beer automatically coming in one of these places, you take your beer coaster or beer mat and you put it on top of your glass. This signals, no more for me please. However, if you've only had one or two, this might alarm the server. Are you sick? As I said, sometimes it's hard to track down your server. Never snap your fingers at them or even raise your hand. In fact, don't gesture at all. Try to catch their eye. However, truly experienced servers will look around a room and avoid eye level. They'll look a little bit above your head and they'll look right around your chest level, but they will not look at eye level. Now, if they're really a true pro, they will check in with you from time to time but many do not, despite being specifically trained to do so. It's not unheard of to have all your servers just vanish for ages. I don't know if they're smoking or playing poker or what's going on. One little trick I've learned is to simply put an empty glass or a plate if you're eating near the edge of the table in plain sight. This will usually trigger their training and prompt them to come over to clear it and then you can quickly try and order another beer while they're there. Now they may try and hurry away however, so don't be shy. Speak plainly and clearly. But don't shout and don't give them attitude either or you will never see them again. Remember, this is their place and they do things the way that they do them and it's you who should adapt, not the other way around. This game will go on for the entire time that you're in that pub and it will happen a lot more if you are foreigners. When you're all done and it comes time to pay, you say zaplatima or zaplatim if you're alone, which means we will pay or I will pay. Very often, they'll try and make things easier on themselves and just get you to combine the whole bill into a single sum, which somebody will then pay, and then everybody at the table can work it out amongst themselves. You can do this if you want to make the server a little bit of a friend. He or she will appreciate it and might even remember you the next time that you come in. After all, you made their job easier, and that means you're okay. Otherwise, say zvlasht, which means separate, and then they'll go around and tally everyone's amounts. However, they will make mistakes, sometimes accidentally, so keep an eye on things. Now, you have to remember that servers are paid a living wage here, and tipping here is not like it is in the United States. In the U.S., you're actually supplementing the server's income, but in the Czech Republic, it really is just an extra. Most people round up because nobody likes carrying around a bunch of loose coins. In Prague, it's become somewhat standard to kind of add 10% and then round up or down a little bit. Keep the money denominations in mind. There are one and two crown coins, but nobody likes those. And nobody really likes the five crown coins either. So try and keep it to divisible by 10 crowns, 20 crowns, 50 crowns, and 100 crowns. So what you do, as I said, is you kind of round it up and add a bit. So in Prague, if your bill is, say, 247 crowns, you might round it up plus tip to 275 or 280, or if you're feeling really generous, 300. In many village pubs, most people for 247 would just round it up to 260 or maybe even just 250, and that would be considered fine. The way you tip is you tell the server the new total once you've added the tip. Do not leave the tip money on the table. 
The servers will not understand this as a tip. They will think that you, A, didn't tip them, and B, then were so stupid that you forgot your money and left it on the table. And other patrons may just think, hey, free money, and take it, and it may never even get to the server. So in the example, the server will say 247 crowns, and you'll say 280, and hand them your money. Let's say it's 300 crowns, and then they'll give you 20 crowns back. And usually they'll say thank you. If it's a big tip, they might effuse a bit. And if it's a really, really big tip, however, they may refuse it. The first thing they'll think is, you've made a mistake of some kind. There's no way you intended to tip me 50%. If you intended to tip them 50%, you might have to become a bit insistent in a friendly way. Now, a really big tip in Prague will probably earn you quite a bit of gratitude from the server, and they may treat you much better the next time you pop in there. In a village pub, however, just don't do this. You'll come across like some kind of a show-off who has money, and they will probably treat you worse the next time you go in there. By the way, this tipping method of figuring out what you want the total amount to be, including the tip, and then telling the person is how you tip everywhere, taxis everywhere. And finally, really old school places still have this idea that it is demeaning for one person to hand money to another person. Instead, money is placed on the table and they put your change there as well. This is also true in some shops where you can see a change tray right there on the counter. This not handing things to people with your own hand applies to everything, even cigarettes. If somebody bums a cigarette, the polite thing to do is to pull one out a little bit from the pack, but keep it still in the pack, move the pack towards the person, and they will take the cigarette out themselves. Handing a loose cigarette to someone or money or something is rude. It's, it's the kind of thing that adults do to children because they're unable to do it for themselves or that higher-ups might do to servants. So, there you have it, a basic primer in Czech beer and beer customs. Now armed with what every Czech in the pub already has in their heads, you're ready to go out and try some of the good stuff straight from the tap and have some wandering, meandering conversations about nothing and everything and basically really enjoy Czech pub culture. Nazdravi, But just make sure to look everybody in the eyes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prague Times. If you liked this episode, be sure to like it or share it and tell your friends. Check us out on all of our social media platforms for extra goodies as well. Until next time, this has been Prague Times. <laughs>